Hello and welcome to the Liz Our Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half by investing in our health and our well-being today. And with 2023 drawing to a close, I want to take some time to reflect on the conversations that have had a real impact on me personally this year and that I think we need to take heed of as we think about taking care of our mental and physical health in the new year. I give people the analogy that oestrogen is like chocolate syrup that you can pour on the ice cream and it'll just go into all the different little areas. The Irish and their potatoes, the Chinese and their rice, the Italians and their noodles, right? There's lots of carbs all over history, but what nobody had was the lack of a fasting period. A lot of the patients who are finding help and therapeutic benefit from, from cannabis and CBD are the patients with fibromyalgia, with migraines, with IBS. It's not surprising in a way that the food causes such a range of effects because the root pathology is often the same. In a way, it would be quite weird if the diet caused strokes and heart attacks but didn't also cause dementia. Well, we'll come to those conversations in just a moment. But first, over to you. You've been in touch on Instagram, letting me know which episodes you found most useful this year. Lisa says, reversing your biological age. Very interesting and loved how the science behind it was explained. I actually understood what was being explained. Well, that was the recent episode with Dr. Nicola Conlon about NAD. Kieran loved Megan Ramos. That was all about fasting, saying her advice is truly transformative. And Linda loved hearing about ultra-processed foods with Dr. Chris Van Tuliken. Well, Linda, aha, you'll be pleased to know that I will also be reflecting on Chris's episode, one of my favourites, amongst others, in just a moment. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Okay, I want to start with Avram Blooming. He is a professor, a medical oncologist, and has been studying the benefits and risks of breast cancer patients taking HRT for over 25 years. He co-wrote the incredible book called Oestrogen Matters, which is exactly what I wanted to get to the heart of during my conversation with him. Why does oestrogen matter so much? Women start making significant amounts of estrogen when they reach menarche. Uh, when they reach menopause, usually between 45 and 55, it plummets. It plummets to about 2 to 5% of what it was <gasps> before, unlike Gosh. testosterone, which in men goes down slowly. So it's not quite as 
symptomatic a transition. In fact, most men aren't aware of a transition at all. Women develop significant symptoms. And because I'm a man, what I was taught, or at least what I picked up, is, well, estrogen symptoms are bothersome. They usually involve hot flushes. They used to be called flashes, but a flash is over in an instant. And a flush usually starts deep inside you, whether it's your chest or your head, spreads out to your face and your skin. You turn red, you start to perspire. It can last for several minutes. Mm. Uh, And we knew about hot flushes and problems sleeping, but most people weren't aware of most of the other symptoms of menopause. Brain fog being a major one, palpitations being one that even many current cardiologists aren't aware of. Weight gain, increased girth, Mm -hmm. loss of sexual desire, painful sexual intercourse, frequent urinary tract infections. Uh, These are major symptoms. And the male approach was usually, well, yes, they're bothersome, but get over it. You're a woman. (laughs) And uh, they'll pass quickly. Well, in point of fact, the median time it takes for these symptoms to pass is 7.4 years. That's an incredibly long period of time. And symptoms affect approximately 80% of women who are fortunate enough to live long enough to experience the symptoms. And putting them aside is simply no longer acceptable. Women will no longer accept that kind of avoiding the subject. And what we know now is that estrogen is far and away the most effective treatment for all of those symptoms. It will Mm. relieve or eliminate those symptoms in up to 80% of women who take it, and nothing else comes close. So that's one reason that estrogen matters. It so does. I, I just want to pick up on something that has really shocked me, actually. And as you know, I've, I've, I've written books on menopause and have been working with so many people over the years. Obviously, you know, our estrogen goes up, as you say, when we start to have our periods and, you know, we, we're, we're full of it as, as women. I did not know that it plummeted to just, what, two two to four percent of what we had originally. I mean, that's almost nothing. It, it's, it's, it's like we go from full of estrogen to virtually nil. I mean, that is staggering. It is staggering. And it's not widely accepted. I mean, it's not widely known. And that's terrible. And that's an actual fact. That's an actual physical fact. Uh, That is a laboratory finding that has been reproducibly published. So why do we lose it then? Is it, you know, it's obviously so life-changing and we can talk about that and and we will talk about that. Uh, Is it that we just kind of weren't designed to live that long? Uh, You say that with a smile, but that's true. At the turn of the 20th century in 1900, a minority of women survived past age 50. And so it wasn't a big issue. Now the median survival is 80 plus. It's now a major issue. Women will spend approximately at least 30% of their lives in perimenopause and menopause. The, The symptoms which is what I started with, are very obvious. Uh, It's very interesting that 
in terms of advertisements that we see here in the States, male, what is euphemistically called erectile dysfunction, gets a lot more airtime than all of these other symptoms that <laughs> women have. And testosterone yes. is widely advertised. Well, that's an incredible imbalance in what we understand is going on. But there's, there's much more than symptoms. Uh, in 1991, in the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, there were two researchers then working at Harvard, Lee Goldman and Anna Kostasin, who reported that estrogen helps prevent heart disease in about 50% of women. Well, when I hear that, and I talk to women about that, what I usually understand is, but if estrogen causes breast cancer, and we'll obviously get to that, breast cancer affects younger women, and heart disease affects older women, and I'd rather die old than die young. But in point of fact, heart disease kills more women than breast cancer in every decade of a woman's life starting at age 40. And really? the difference, meaning heart disease kills more and more, increases with every decade. So that in total, heart disease kills seven times as many women as does breast cancer. Even mm. women affected by breast cancer have a much higher rate of dying of heart disease than they have of dying of breast cancer. In addition, hip fracture due to osteoporosis kills close to as many women, let me say that differently, within one year of a hip fracture, the percentage of women and actually the actual number who die as a result of the hip fracture is approximately the same number who die of breast cancer. In the United States, it's about 40,000 per year. And what we hear is, well, if you take calcium and vitamin D and you exercise, you will protect your bone's ability to withstand a stress that can cause hip fracture. And that is not true. If you don't take estrogen and you are a peri or postmenopausal woman, neither calcium, vitamin D, nor exercise will preserve your bone's elasticity and unless you take estrogen, which is far and away the best way of preserving your bone's elasticity and integrity, you will have a hip fracture, which is a terrible problem. Now, I research, talk and write about oestrogen, HRT and menopause all the time. And I think what I found just so very shocking about this conversation was the fact that in midlife, women's oestrogen plummets to just 2 to 5% of what it was before. And it's just extraordinary to me the vast number of health issues that this leads to. For me personally, these were not hot flushes, never actually had one of those, but I did have so many other debilitating symptoms, things like brain fog, heart palpitations that would wake me up in the middle of the night, frequent UTIs that just wouldn't respond to repeated rounds of useless antibiotics, each one of those, of course, negatively affecting my gut health. I think with this conversation, I was also struck by the incredible disparity between women and men's hormonal health care and the simply enraging patriarchal attitude by so many medics here. 
that men have historically decided our symptoms aren't significant enough to consider, although erectile dysfunction, of course, well, yeah, that is. I really do hope that by listening to this, the sisterhood amongst us are now realising that we just don't have to put up with this and we can speak up and we can get help. And of course, don't forget the vitally important impact that replacing oestrogen has on heart disease, our biggest killer, alongside osteoporosis and bone elasticity, of course. I was also really struck by Avron's comments that, while important, calcium and vitamins won't touch the sides, to quote him, when it comes to bones compared to oestrogen. Such a very, very important message for all of us to hear. So Avram made it very clear what incredible effect oestrogen has on our physical bodies. But how big a role do hormones play on our brain function? Jayshree Kulkarni is a professor of psychiatry. Her work focuses on the role of hormones in mental illnesses like schizophrenia and depression, particularly in women. So what does the current research say about hormones helping with significant cognitive decline, things like Alzheimer's? Well, this is a fascinating insight. There are some fabulous studies that have been done and the results came out recently in very, very high-flying journals that do show that, in fact, in women who carry the APOE, which is the APOE gene that is predisposing to Alzheimer's, for example, that in those women, the uh, initiation of hormone therapy in menopause actually led to an improvement in the actual images in the brain in terms of volumes of brain and grey matter and so on. So it, it is a really important factor to consider. Now, not everybody rushes off and get their total genome sort of, uh, you know, worked out. So we don't mm. really know exactly who's carrying what. And so it does become an important preventative issue, especially if there's a strong family history. So that that's one point. The second point is that in menopause depression, which is a thing, it's a real thing, you know, it's depression created and caused by the fluctuations of the gonadal hormones in the menopause process. This is a depression where there are changes in the brain that actually respond really well to treatment with hormone therapy. And that's also been shown in brain imaging studies. So that's pretty convincing as well. So I think those two imaging studies that have hit the presses more recently, I, I think are really significant because for a long time there was sort of almost a poo-pooing of the idea that, you know, you could use hormone therapy for depression. And I still think there's a lot of trepidation, which we're still not quite sure why, but it, it, it does involve a mythology that hormone treatment will cause cancers and do all sorts of bad things. And I think the Women's Health Initiative study that was done in 2001 and had oh, made, my gosh. Sens <laughs> made sensational headlines, yeah. that it's, it's all yeah. been debunked. But I still, in clinical practice, I still have primary healthcare practitioners who say, oh, I can't possibly prescribe HRT because, you know, it'll cause cancer. And we haven't managed to dispel that notion once something makes the sensational headlines, it's very hard when you've got a page 23 retraction for people to, uh, to you know, really get that perspective. And, I, and of course, nobody wants to create 
a new problem and particularly a bad problem like cancer, you know, that's certainly something that we don't want to be doing. But I think we've got to think, what are we doing when someone's quality of life is completely shattered by menopausal depression and cognitive decline that could be treated successfully with hormone therapy? You've got to do the risk-benefit analysis there. Yeah, and as you know, successfully and safely. Some of the more recent studies on estrogen show it to be actually cancer protective, even yes. with breast cancer. So it's, we're getting there. But it, as you say, you know, it's like a, an ocean going tanker. It has a long stopping distance. And when we have to try and turn it around, it's it's going to take a bit of time, isn't it? But now I know that you've also used hormones to treat other mental conditions. You know, we've talked about schizophrenia, bipolar, depression, does that work in the same way then, sort of filling in these the, the missing links within the, the estrogen brain receptors? Yes, it does. And um, sometimes I, I give people the analogy that estrogen is like chocolate syrup that you can pour on the ice cream and it'll just go into all the different little areas. Yum. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it's it's an it's a ubiquitous in the brain. There is so there are so many different areas of the brain that it works on that it's not and necessarily a targeted treatment for everything, not by any long shot, but it definitely has neuroprotective effects. And we think that's through both genomic and non-genomic pathways, as well as direct effects on circuitry, neurocircuitry, brain circuitry. So, you know, it, it's it's got a lot of different effects. And again, it's really interesting that in certain groups of women, they are much more vulnerable to shifts in their estrogen levels in the brain. And we think this is linked to early life trauma. So women, who, women who've women who had early life emotional or physical or sexual trauma seem to have an alteration in their brain biology related to alteration in their stress hormone levels. I mean, all the hormones, the lovely hormones all talk to each other, of course, and the stress hormone cortisol and its and its other derivatives really have major impacts on the governing of the estrogen and the other gonadal hormones. And so when something goes wrong or is, is difficult for a, a woman as a girl, um, unfortunately, that can create this more sensitive environment in the brain so that she's the one that then develops premenstrual depression and is more likely to develop postnatal depression and more likely to develop menopausal depression. That's not to say that everybody who gets those three things you know, necessarily has early life trauma, but we have noticed that there is an increased sensitivity in that group. And, and again, that's another area that's really important to explore because in this day and age, the modern practice of psychiatry and mental health really needs to be holistic, needs to really take into account the biological impacts along with the psychological impacts, along with the social or environmental impacts, and it's a circle. So what goes on in the environment affects the biology and what goes on in the biology affects the psychology and so on. So we don't differentiate and say, we'll just look at the biology. No, we don't. We look at the whole context. And it's really important for women to understand that they do, if they have had early life trauma, that, you know, their biology may also be affected. There are solutions, but, you know, they still need to be aware of that. 
I loved this chat as it really highlighted, possibly for the first time, how significant hormone therapy is in helping with depression and the potential for HRT, preventing Alzheimer's and dementia. So interesting to hear a senior professor presenting such profound evidence for this. I also loved the way she prioritised women's quality of life and the risk-benefit analysis here. Just so very frustrating that the debunked Women's Health Initiative is still clearly holding weight in some medical circles. And didn't you just love that chocolate syrup analogy of hormones smoothing out the oestrogen cracks in our brain biology? And interesting that these last two professors, Avram and Jayshree, both essentially feel oestrogen is this chocolate syrup and that this one thing alone has the potential to cover off just so many significant health issues. Crazy when you think that replacing natural hormones should really be the very first course of action when far too many women are currently being prescribed dozens of different medications from antidepressants to beta blockers and more. Now, speaking of that chocolate syrup effect, something else that has the potential to help with myriad conditions, I'm talking seizures, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, side effects of chemo, Crohn's, breast cancer, I mean, the list goes on. This is medical cannabis. Journalist, educator and leading CBD expert Mary Biles came on the show earlier this year to explain why we need to understand the endocannabinoid system in order to understand how one plant can help so many different conditions. How can, you know, someone with MS find it helpful, epilepsy, you know, patients with cancer even, um, chronic pain? It's like, well, you know, this is ridiculous. It can't help everything. So once we start to understand this system called the endocannabinoid system, so I need, I need to start by saying this is not a kind of woo-woo system that's just been kind of created or, you know, I'm a big fan of the woo, I'm, I must point out, you know, I, I really, I'm a very much embrace <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, energy therapy, you know, all the mm. rest of it. But this is, you know, this is, I just want to kind yeah. of, you know, establish that, that this is something that's been studied and discovered back in the towards the end of the 1980s so there um, a lot of the kind of really important research in relation to how cannabis works in the body um, actually came out of Israel so a scientist called Raphael Mutulam is kind of like the granddaddy of cannabinoid science had the kind of curiosity to try and find out and explain the effects of THC in the body and so essentially kind of it was like a puzzle really so the first parts of the puzzles were that he discovered some receptors which have been called endocannabinoid receptors so endo meaning within and cannabinoid referring to the the compounds in the cannabis plant so we have a class of endocannabinoid receptor in our brains and central nervous system and then a, a, a naturally it's yes, just there it's just naturally there. occurring all just of us ha- have that like yep. like we'd have an estrogen receptor we have an endocannabinoid yeah. receptor yeah. and i think it's it's an ancient okay. system i think um even though you know going back millions of years i think it's ancient sea squirts they found um have you know a kind of very basic endocannabinoid system so we have these receptors and you know you could think oh that's you know they're just sitting there for someone to smoke a joint and and um but <laughs> but no actually because you know the thc binds with these receptors but we also which they went on to discover produce our own endogenous so we make our own cannabis like compounds which are sort of similar to neurotransmitters called endocannabinoids. And so there's kind of two main ones that we know at the moment. 
one called anandamide. So for any of your listeners who are sort of, you know, study Sanskrit or, or you know, into yoga will, will recognize the word ananda, so meaning joy or bliss. So the researchers kind of intuitively um, realized that this, this endocannabinoid was somehow related to this feeling of of, of well-being and bliss that we experience sometimes. And there's another one which has a slightly less sexy name of 2AG. I think that one got the bad deal, really. But that is the other class of... 2AG. 2AG. Not 2AG. I was going to say 2AG. 2AG. <laughs> I was going to say, wow, that's very right on, isn't it? Yeah, it's a bit 2AG, that one. <laughs> yeah, no, just 2AG. Anyway, so then they were like, okay, we've got the receptors, we've got the compounds that, that bind with these receptors. Well, what does this do? And what they realized is essentially the, the kind of the fancy term is it's a homeostatic regulator. So um, I really like a, a, a sort of description of it that, um, that I read somewhere um, that describes it as being like a dimmer switch. So it's, it's there basically keeping, you know, all our, all our systems in, in balance. So if there's too much activity, it turns it down, it dials it down. If there's mm. not enough, it dials it up. And so we know the system is working across, you know, every single sort of biological activity in the body and system. So, you know, it's, it's involved with regulating our sleep, our mood, our immune system, our reproductive system, everything it's involved in. It's in, you know, mother's breast milk. It's, you know, really? it's the, the anandamide is. So it's, you know, it's something that it's, you know, throughout our entire, our entire body, but it's barely known about it. It's, be, it's because it's so, you know, in relative terms, it's quite a recent discovery. Also, you know, it's because it's linked to the cannabis plant. It's still just about starting to be taught in medical school, mm-hmm. which is kind of a deep shame because it's actually, a, I think, a vital piece of information for doctors when they're seeing patients with conditions that are really hard to get to grips with. So, what we're sort of understanding now, and it, it, there's um, something called clinical endocannabinoid deficiency. So when the, the sort of the endocannabinoid system is slightly impaired, and, and actually this can, you know, stress um, is not great for endocannabinoid system, uh, poor diet, not enough sleep. But they've seen in a kind of cluster of conditions like, well, there's a, a, an oversensitivity to pain, such as fibromyalgia, right. migraines, uh, yeah. IBS, MS as well. These are the kind of initial ones where an endocannabinoid deficiency has been detected. Now, the difficulty is, is that you can't sort of pop off to boots and get your endocannabinoid levels measured because as they're, they're kind of produced in order to sort of carry out this uh, regulating activity and then they get broken down again. So, you know, the, the, the sort of the data that we have so far is from doing lumbar punctures and all sorts of things like that. But it is interesting, and you'll know with your, you know, with your daughter that a lot of the patients who are finding help and therapeutic benefit from from cannabis and CBD are the patients with fibromyalgia, with migraines, with IBS. I love Mary's point that CBD is not woo-woo, but fully credited and researched medical science. I actually didn't realise that we all have endocannabinoid receptors in the brain and that they're naturally part of us, which I guess begs the question, why? And should we be far more aware of their benefits? And who doesn't want to experience more of the bliss factor that Mary talked about? You know, from my own experience with friends and close family receiving regulated medical cannabis, 
I've seen firsthand just how effective this can be for hard to treat chronic pain. And I just really wish this could be made more widely available. Well, for those interested, do check out the work of David Nutt. He was a previous guest on this show and his charity, DrugScience.org, which connects potential patients with experienced doctors who can help access treatment and prescriptions. Time to break the stigma and smash the taboo that cannabis is something from the underworld and bring it out into the open as a mainstream medical treatment. Well, stay right there. Let's come back in a moment and talk about another favourite topic of this podcast, and that's food, with a brilliant conversation all about ultra-processed food and intermittent fasting in particular. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Now, we heard from Jayshree just how significant a role hormones play in our brain health, but they aren't the only thing that can have an effect on cognitive decline. We've also got to look at the food we're eating. Leading academic, award-winning broadcaster and practising NHS doctor Chris Van Tuliken has written a brilliant and in many ways petrifying best-selling book called Ultra Processed People – explaining what ultra-processed foods are really doing to our bodies. It was such a great opportunity to chat to him about a big bugbear of mine, and that's the margarine-style spreads, cooking oils and hydrogenation, things I tend to get on my soapbox about more of that in a moment. But first, 
Is there a connection between ultra-processed foods and dementia? So there is one reasonably good study linking ultra-processed food to dementia. Now, it, it's it, these kind of studies are very hard to do, but it, it, there is there, are, there there is some basics. So there's an epidemiological link where if we do some statistics and look at population data, that the two seem to be associated. Whether it's that low-income people who also smoke and 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 maybe have a higher alcohol intake are eating more UPF and 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 it's not causing it isn't quite clear, but the statisticians are very good at trying to adjust for those. And it does look like UPF is an independent risk factor. And there are some early studies that some of the chemicals like acrylamide, which come out of uh, things in high temperature cooking and some of the plastics may be associated with brain inflammation. And we know also this is food mm. that is pro-inflammatory. So it it makes it's not surprising in a way that the food causes such a range of effects because the root the root pathology is often the same. In a way, it would be quite weird if the diet caused strokes and heart attacks, but didn't also cause dementia. It's This is food that is, right. is very likely to be inflaming the entire body. And you're essentially building your cells and your tissues out of molecules that you don't really find very much in nature. Mm -hmm. So there are, I think, r real reasons to be concerned about that. Yeah. Interesting you talk about things that you don't find in nature. The first book that I wrote was called Vital Oils 30 odd years ago. And that was the one that I was nearly sued by a famous margarine manufacturer, you know, for daring to suggest that hydrogenated trans fats could potentially be damaging to health. Liz, I didn't know you'd written that. So <laughs> yeah, you yeah. must know the work of Hugh MacDonald Sinclair You, you yeah. and, and um, yeah. all the early work it's... on the oils. I mean, it's... The, the, the That's kind of what, what, what led me into writing about health and nutrition in, in the early days, because I was just fascinated by hydrogenation and, and how that could possibly be bad for us and why, you know, butter was being so demonised. And of course, you focus also on the whole story of the making of fake butter, which was music to my ears to read it or music to my eyes. <laughs> it was, it was um, that was in a way the most interesting chapter to read because it's a historical chapter about how... Mm the German Nazi war machine in, in the Second World War made fake butter from coal. But it felt like a really important way of explaining the logic of UPF, which is that it is not about nutrition. It is about economics and the, the mere sort of sustenance of life. I mean, the trans fat campaigners like you are the reason that now trans fats aren't in our diet. And so it was a relatively small group of people who weren't captured mm. by the food industry, like you, who saved, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you probably save 100,000 lives a year, possibly oh, more. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, <laughs> and so it's, it's, a, it's such well, a powerful example of... I was I was one of many, but I was very passionate about it and still am. Oh, and and know, people I, got vilified and sued and you were painted it. as yeah. hippies yeah, yeah. and anti-science. Yeah, you know, yeah, not a doctor. What do you know what you're talking right. about? You know, just, and you're, you're just, you know, a young woman, you know, get back in your box. Yeah. So it's so, so interesting that you've been... I, 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 I'll order. Can I get an old copy of Vital? <laughs> well, it's been out of print for a long time and it's probably been way superseded. But, no, I can but, you get know, it. Look here, I found it online. I'm going to get it. No at way. Well, the books. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. Eight books. How, how much is uh, it? Twelve. No, it's, it's it's actually quite expensive. No, it's probably about 30p, isn't it? Probably, I should think. Oh, I but... found one for £2.73. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I mean, you know, there has to be activism. 
You know, the mm, industry mm-hmm. and the food industry, I spent a lot of time talking to people in the food industry and they want to change. And people in the food industry, there are several examples at Pepsi and Danon of mm. executives going, no, we must do things differently. And as they try, the share price plummets and they get fired by activist investors. <sighs> so people within yeah. the food industry, you know, they say, look, the purpose of the companies is to make money. Unless we are regulated, mm. we have to sell, whether it's trans fats or ultra processed mm. food. And so so it's it's activism that will change it. And And at the moment, our activism is kind of fake activism where many of our activists are fundamentally funded by the food industry. Well, is it kind of controlled opposition? Yeah, and you, you're not quite sure, you know, who, who the white hats are and which ones you should be supporting. Talking about the industry, I've heard it said that UPF's additives are deliberately addictive, that they are engineered and that the people who are putting them into formulations, because that's what these products are, basically, just formulae, is there, are, are doing it deliberately because they know the effect that it's going to have, the deleterious effect. Is there any evidence of this? I, it depends what you mean by deliberately. So the, the food is, uh, I spoke to people who sold uh, nutritional bars at a sort of supermarket level, the kind of sales reps up to the people in the food labs developing the food, up all the way to a CEO of one of the major ice cream companies and all the investment bankers that do everything in the middle. So I spoke to a lot of people and everyone said the same thing. It's not that they are setting out to hurt you. It's that they're putting food through design processes where the thing they're looking for is food that's really delicious and that people eat lots of. And after, you know, most of our breakfast cereals, our popular breakfast cereals, were developed 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. And so they've been through these design processes again and again and again and each time they get a little bit more edible they add a, a little bit more flavoring they just they add a bit more salt a bit more acid to cut the sugar and that allows a bit more sugar and then you add a bit more acid so they're they're reformulating it gets softer but there's a little bit of crunch still and mm-hmm. you end up with a food you can't stop eating and no one set yeah. out to deliberately drive obesity there is a school of thought of course that um, people who live with obesity do eat more because your metabolism goes up when you gain weight. Um, I don't think the project is that cynical. No no one at a food company has gone, look, if we can make everyone gain weight in 10 years' time, the share price will be higher. I loved my chat with Dr. Chris here and the common ground that we both share about healthy fats and hydrogenation. Wasn't that fascinating about the history of fake butter? And I loved that he actually went and ordered my original book, Vital Oils, right there online during our chat. Well, Chris's suggestions about the connection between ultra-processed foods and cognitive decline makes such sense to me, and it is a continuing concern. As you may have seen on my recent Instagram post, I am certainly not going to stop shouting about this. I posted recently looking at some of the soft, buttery-type spreads, often labelled misleadingly as if they were just butter, some even of the big food brands creating these things. But when you look closely at the labels, you realise they are actually ultra-processed foods. Maybe they contain a bit of butter, maybe they don't. Some are just made with buttermilk. Most contain seed oils, things like rapeseed oil or things like palm oil that's been hardened and hydrogenated. Certainly not the kind of things that we need to be eating, especially when we can just get pure, plain, wholesome butter as a healthier alternative. 
and so interesting also about the reformulation of breakfast cereals and the role of these in our rising rates of obesity, and then his comments on the food industry inner workings to help us all understand further how our personal health is actually being influenced by capitalism. Well, I guess we know really what we put in our mouths is going to impact our health, but what about when we eat it? Jason Fung has been dubbed the doctor who invented intermittent fasting. I love fasting myself. Anecdotally, I feel so much better for an extended fast. My last one being five full days of fasting at the amazing Booking at Willamy Fasting Clinic in Marbella. But I wanted to hear about the real medical impact of fasting, particularly on the areas of growing concern that are affecting so many of us now, such as type 2 diabetes and obesity. So I asked him how important intermittent fasting is compared to things like looking at insulin levels and carb and sugar intake. What kind of percentage would he rate it in terms of value for our overall health? I think it's it's probably like 70% of the game because... Really? That eat, much? Yeah, You've amazed because, me. Uh, yeah, I, and I think the, the problem is that people never think of that fasting period as... Like that's the period of time that you're going to use up your stored energy because one, if you have a shorter eating window, you're going to in general eat less. And two, if you're going to less frequently, you're going to generally eat better because you're going to be able to put more effort into it, right? So if you have to eat six times a day, four of those meals or eating periods is going to be whatever you can grab out of a, you know, package of whatever, right? Cereal, bars, whatever it is, it's going to be ultra processed. Because it's too many. Like you can't do eight proper meals a day. Like right? you're not going to cook and clean and wash your dishes six, eight times a day. But if you only do it twice, certainly you can do that. You can make. So, so there's a lot of reasons why cutting down that eating period is more important. Because remember, there are lots of people throughout history who have eaten a high carb meal, like the Irish and their potatoes, the Chinese and their rice, the Italians and their noodles, right? There's lots of carbs all over history. But what nobody had was the lack of a fasting period, right? So you ate and then you had a fasting period. You ate and then you fasted. You fed and fasted. Feeding and fasting. And that's a natural rhythm. As soon as you disrupt that natural rhythm and feed all the time and don't fast, well, when are you going to use the energy that you stored? So cutting down the eating period to normal, even if it's three meals a day with no snacks, so that's, that's a huge improvement from the average person in yeah. 2023, right? And that it's, should uh, be very doable, you know, three meals a day and no snacks. But then if we are thinking, perhaps people you know, listening for the first time thinking, actually, do you know what? I'm convinced now I am going to try a bit of intermittent fasting. Is there a specific set time? Because I've heard various different things. Some people say you should go 10 hours as a break, 12 hours. Some say, no, no, 14 hours is the absolute optimum. What's your view? I think that the natural, so if you go back to the 70s, people were eating, say, dinner at 6 or 7 p.m. They're eating breakfast at 7 or 8 a.m. You're talking about a 12 to 14 hour period of fasting that everybody in the 1970s did every single day without even thinking about it, right? And people, like I remember when I started talking about it, dietitians and doctors, they were horrified by the thought of somebody going 10 hours without eating. I'm like, you know that every, literally every single person in the 1970s did that, right? And if you're a naughty boy and sent to bed without dinner, you're going 20 hours, 
right? And nobody blinked an eye. Now people go sort of like more than 20 minutes and people are, that you didn't eat something. Yeah, we go up with snacks minutes. in our bags. They're everywhere, every railway yeah. station. It's like you cannot get on this train without a snack, you know? Yeah. I mean, the, I was on a train yesterday and everybody seemed to be eating something around me. I mean, since when did that happen, you know? Yeah, and it's it's part of the culture now because it became so so accepted to eat everywhere, whereas in the Yeah, to 70s, eat in front of it, other strangers, it was... Yeah, yeah it was just not something that, you did. So, so the whole point is that 12 to 14 hours is your baseline. That should be a baseline. That's not going to lose you weight, but it'll hopefully keep you from gaining too much weight. If you want to lose weight, you probably have to extend that to 16 hours. Or you could go longer. I mean, um, you know, I, I haven't eaten since Sunday night. So that's like a day and a half for right now. Yeah, yeah. Are you doing that to trigger autophagy? I, I did a fasting clinic stint recently I did five days to to trigger autophagy and to kind of look at zombie cells and and all of that yeah, is that something that. separate that, um that's something separate so there are other benefits mm-hmm. uh which uh, yeah. are very important but I'm doing it for different reasons I'm going on holiday I'm going on vacation next week so I want to sort of get a little ahead of yeah the... yeah yeah exactly get into deficit before you go <laughs> exactly I'm not I'm not gonna like you know I'm not gonna hold back and be that guy who's like you know, oh, I can't eat this, I can't eat this, I can't eat this, I can't eat that. I'm going to enjoy myself, but I'm going to make up for it. I'm going to make up for it before I go. I'm going to make up for it after I go. Wow, I was really struck here by the incredible difference. Just a short period of daily intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating makes on our overall good health. For me, I now practice giving food a break for at least 12 to 14 hours a day, and I've noticed a real marked difference to my health, improved gut health, of course, appetite control, and even better sleep. And what do you think about snacking? His comments only reinforce to me how important it is not to snack between meals. And in fact, I tend to actually only eat basically two meals a day now. I have brunch and then dinner and I rarely snack. And if I do, I head for high fat, high protein options to keep me feeling fuller for longer. So I'll go for things like a full fat yogurt, maybe a few Brazil nuts, slice of cheese or a bit of hummus, that kind of thing, not the sugars. And I genuinely think that a bit of intermittent fasting really is an achievable goal we can all aim for in our daily lives and will benefit all of us, not just in terms of reduced risk of type 2 diabetes and obesity, but simply for our overall health and future well-being. Well, the biggest thank you to every single person who's come on and shared their knowledge and experience on the show this year. We've had some truly amazing guests. It's been an absolute honour. And these guys highlighted today are just an example. So I hope that over the festive season, especially, you might just have a few quiet moments to dig into our archive episodes from this year. And more, of course, if you scroll back even further to previous years. But looking ahead now, which part of your health and well-being would you like me to investigate more of in the coming months? Do let me know. You can leave your thoughts and your comments on Instagram. The best way to find us is at Lizelle Wellbeing. And you can also find me there too, at Lizelle Me. Normal service resumes next week with some brilliant chat about how foods can both cause and soothe an anxious mind. A great follow-up to some of today's conversations, actually. Well, until then, go well, stay well, and have a very, very Merry Christmas. Goodbye.
The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Nushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.